One of the struggles that you and I face often in our lives, and particularly that comes up in counseling, is the fear of man. Many of us struggle with the fear of man in various forms. For some of us, we struggle with the fear of man in the form of peer pressure. Now, for some, we think peer pressure is something that only happens to us when we're in middle school and we sort of grow out of it. But of course, as adults, we face in our jobs, among our friends and family, various forms of peer pressure. Various forms where we're pressured to think a particular way or vote a particular way or to live a particular way because, well, after all, everyone is doing it and so we join in. The fear of man also presents itself in the form of codependency. This means that we're dependent on others more than we're dependent on God. We trust others more than we trust God. And so we are codependent upon those around us. We're, others enable us in our fear of man by giving us everything that we want. The fear of man comes in many forms. And ultimately what the fear of man is, is a condition of the heart whereby one is more beholden to man than to God. Where we, can, we care more about what others think about us than what God thinks about us. We care more about how people see us and their perception of us than we do about what God's perception of us is. We care more about keeping up with the Joneses than keeping up with God and His Word. We depend on others We depend on their ideas rather than seeking the Lord's will. This morning we're going to think about the fear of man and the desire to show gratitude to God for all that He provides. In Psalm 34, David faces a tremendous challenge. He's in a situation where he could easily be given into the fear of man. But by the grace of God, the Lord delivers him from this particular situation. As we turn to Psalm 34 this morning, and if you've turned there already, let me invite you to do that, but we're going to turn to one other place as we get started. If you turn to Psalm 34, it's found on page 463 in the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, let me encourage you just to grab that off, turn it to Psalm 34, uh, ask for help around you. We're going to consider this this morning. But while you're there, look with me for just a moment, we're going to go somewhere else as we begin. You'll notice there at Psalm 34, it has a superscript, it has a, a, a little intro to it, and it says, this is a Psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. This superscript tells us that this psalm is born out of a historic context. Uh, David wrote this because of something that was going on specifically in his life. And I want to start there this morning because if we understand the context 
rightly, it's going to illumine for us our understanding of the Word of God better. So uh, put your finger there or, or, or keep your bulletin or something there and turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 21. Now, uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you're going to be going to your right and you're going to towards the beginning, and I'll get you the page number in just a second. It's page number 244. Page 244, 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21. As the title indicates that this psalm is an incident that occurred in David's life and is recorded for us in 1 Samuel chapter 21 and verse 10. So I still hear some pages turning. Give you a moment to get there. Well, let's look at this first and, and then... As we read Psalm 34, I think you'll have a better sense of where David is going. 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the serpents of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these things to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors and of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you've brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? My friend, we see there in this particular story that David was on the run from Saul. Just to develop this just a bit for you, uh, Israel had never had a king before until King Saul. He was the, the favorite of the people. He would have won the People's Choice Award if they had such a competition in Israel. Everyone loved Saul. He was a handsome man. He came from a good family. He was strong, good-looking, and he was the ideal choice in the people's eyes to be king. He was the people's choice, but it wasn't God's choice. God had chosen another man named David to be king over Israel. God rejected Saul and chose King David over him, a man described after God's own heart. And what we have going on here is the in-between time when Saul is still on the throne and David has been anointed as king over Israel. And of course, Saul sees David as a threat to his throne and he wants to end his life. And so David is often, throughout this book of 1 Samuel, on the run until the end of the book when Saul dies and David takes the throne. Well, we see in this story that David has, has fled to the neighboring country of Gath. Once he arrived, he, he was afraid. He was afraid because, as the text said, he was known. He had a reputation about him. He was a warrior, a strong warrior. He was the general of the army of Israel. He had killed countless thousands of those surrounding people groups that surrounded the nation of Israel. And, of course, he was afraid that they would kill him as a prisoner of war. And so we're told that he uses wisdom and has a bit of wit about him and begins to act crazy in so much that he's scratching the doors and making uh, you know spit run down his face. And so the king of Achish says, please get him out of my sight. 
While he was delivered, we are told, by his wisdom, as we'll see in just a moment in Psalm 34, he does not attribute his deliverance to himself, but rather to the Lord. We'll flip back over to Psalm 34. Again, page 463, Psalm 34. This is the background to what David now writes in this song. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let, it, let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who, took to, who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He keeps all His bones. None of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of His servant. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. David here crafts a wonderful psalm in the context of affliction. Now the translators in your Bible have most likely notated something peculiar about this psalm and that particular aspect of its style. Now for many of us when we write poetry, we're accustomed to rhyme and rhythm and, and so forth verses or choruses that follow, refrains, and so, so forth. Here, David uses an acronym in order to uh, go about structuring this particular poem. It's an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet. So each verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet, like ours, A, B, C, D, and so forth. Of course, doesn't translate through. And so you can get a sense of the randomness of this particular psalm. It has a driving idea behind it, but isn't organized like we particularly would expect. As you heard, David began by declaring blessings upon the Lord and invited others to join him there in verses 1 and 3. He then moves to recount all the various ways in which the Lord had cared for him, in particular in the midst of this context that we've, we've read. There in verses 4-7, through seven, he recounts the way God delivered him. Then, 
He invites others to join him in pursuing a life of faithfulness and wisdom. So the middle half of the psalm takes on a flavor of the Proverbs in sort of proverbial language. uh, Fear the Lord and follow Him. And then David concludes there with this affirmation of the Lord's deliverance, His providential care and deliverance of His people in verses 15 through 22. In short, this psalm helps us as Christians when we face many trials and afflictions, but we are to continually be grateful for the Lord's care in our lives. This psalm is about thinking through the way God has cared for us, the way He has answered prayer, the way He's showed up in our lives time and time again. You see, gratitude, as we'll consider this morning, is an outflow of an understanding, a position that all that we have hasn't come from us, but from Him. We're ungrateful when we think we've earned something in our life, or we deserve something. But gratitude is a reflection of a heart that is grateful for the Lord's provisions. So the purpose of our time this morning is to really cultivate great gratitude. That We ought to be a people who are grateful for the Lord's work in us. And so David here offers us three main reasons to be grateful for the Lord's care. Number one, the first reason is found in verses 1 through 7. The Lord answers prayer. The Lord answers prayer. We ought to be grateful because God answers prayer. When we pray, we expect God to answer. And He does. And so we're grateful. Secondly, in verses 8 through 14, we see David here pointing us to the provision. The Lord provides. God provides in the life of the righteous. God provides good things to those who follow Him. Even in the midst of affliction, we can say that God is good. Then in verses 8, excuse me, verses 15 through 20, 22, 15 through 22, we see thirdly, the Lord delivers. The Lord delivers. So the Lord answers prayer, the Lord provides, and the Lord delivers. This is sort of David's three main reasons to be grateful. Number one, look there at verses 1 through 7. In verses 1 through 3, David has an invitation to join him in gratitude. The language that David is using here is one of invitation. He is extending an invitation to the congregation in Israel to join him in offering thanksgiving to reflect upon all the various ways in which God has answered their prayers. He begins, I will bless the Lord at all times, and His praise shall continually be in my mouth. David pictures here an ongoing behavior of exhortation and praise. An ongoing verbal declaration of God's goodness in his life. Again, in verses 2 through 3, David here is demonstrating the life of the the Christian or the righteous who finds God as his only benefactor. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. 
Let the humble hear and be glad. In other words, he orients all the blessings that he has experienced, and particularly the deliverance from the King Achish, to the Lord. It was God who intervened. Though he used David's wisdom, ultimately it was attributed to God. He was the one. Therefore, David says, I want to make much about God. I want to magnify the Lord. To magnify the Lord is to make much about Jesus. And friends, that's what we want to do on every Lord's Day. We want to make much about Jesus. We want to make Jesus big. We want to make everything we do and say in our gathering together about Jesus. Because He is the one who's worthy of our adoration. But we see also David moving on through 4 through 7 as he reflects upon, well, what did God do for you, David? What was it that God did? How did He act? What, what is it that makes Him so worthy of worship? Well, David makes explicit that it was because He answered when He called. When He picked up the phone to ring into heaven, He didn't get a busy tone, but rather the Lord heard Him. Notice here verse 4. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. The same word that the author of 1 Samuel uses and that here David uses is the same, the word fear. Remember, when he went into um, the presence of the king of Gath, he was afraid. He was afraid because he knew his life was in this man's hands. But God delivered him from all of his fears. Notice David's humble estate. In verses 5 and 6, the Lord, or this poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. David pictures here a God who not, a, not only is able to hear, that in and of itself is miraculous, but God can hear our prayers. That, you know, when we gather to pray or we're praying at home or in our cars, you know, just sort of hit the ceiling and fall back down. They're not just in the earshot of those around us. No, no, no. Brothers and sisters, we understand that God hears the prayers of His people. It's wonderful. But much more than that is that God is able to do something. Right? That God has the power and the means, the, not only the providence, but the sovereignty in order to intervene in human history and answer prayer. This is a wonderful truth that we ought to cherish. And perhaps we, don't, we, perhaps we pray little because we don't have confidence that God is able to answer our prayers. For if we truly believe that we had access to the Almighty, then I think we ought to pray more. It ought to encourage us to pray. God is actually able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. God is able. And so we pray. And this is pictured, if you will, in David's language there in verse 7. Look with me there. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. Again, you see this constant refrain of those who fear Him and not man. 
God delivers those who show reverence to Him because He answers prayer. He is powerful. The image of the angel of the Lord is the the one who marches out. The one who defends the cause of the people of Israel. The one who delivers. The one whom Abraham met. The one whom Joshua met. Are you with us? Are you with the others? He is the angel of the Lord. He is the one who is able to do. Charles Haddon Spurgeon commented on this particular at all times, in every situation, every, every, under every circumstance, before and in after every trial, in bright days of glee and dark nights of fear, he would never be done praising because he was never satisfied that he had done enough, always feeling that he fell short of the Lord's deservings. Happy is he whose fingers are wedded to his harp. He who praises God for mercies shall never want a mercy for which to praise. To bless the Lord is never unseasonable. What a wonderful idea. David is continually thanking God because he answers prayer. Let me just commend one activity to you, and that is journaling. Journal your prayers. David is in just a moment is going to say, taste and see the Lord is good. You know, one way you can taste and see the Lord is good is by seeing and chronicling all the ways God answers prayer. All the ways that God shows up and answers miraculously prayers in your life. That God is a God who hears and a God who answers. Well, that leads us to our second reason in that the Lord provides Well, this is the answer to prayer, of course, that the Lord provides. And David, in verses 8 through 14, which is the sort of heart of the psalm, chronicles all the ways God has provided for him. That is the the invitation that he sort of invites. Uh, He challenges us there in verse 8. And this is perhaps the one verse that you know of this psalm. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is a man who takes refuge in him. Oh, taste and see. He says, don't just kind of have an appetizer with God. Don't just, you know, sort of nibble at it. But come and feast on him. Feast on him. Test him, if you will. Try him. Prove him. See if he will do all that he says that he will do. This is, of course, what Peter builds upon in 1 Peter chapter 2, he quotes this particular verse to make clear that the Lord is good. He writes, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Those who truly have tasted live a good life, a godly life, a righteous life. No, no one can taste the Lord truly and be satisfied in Him. The word refuge here in verse 8 is this idea of hiding. To to have refuge is to, to hide oneself in the Lord. To find that He is our hiding place, our protector and provider. 
The Lord provides for His people. This is why David says there in verse 9 that those who fear Him have no lack. Or the second half of verse 10, that those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Those who find satisfaction in God are truly satisfied. But of course, David correlates that those who taste the Lord as good also obey the Lord. To find refuge in God is to go the way of God. And this is where David shifts into a sort of a proverbial language as he reminds the people of God, in order to experience deliverance, one must first submit to God's will, to God's way. Well, we should not expect deliverance if we are not willing to obey, to submit to His way and not our way. This is what's made explicit there in verses 11 through 14. Oh, come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. This is similar to how David's son Solomon will begin the Proverbs. The fear of the Lord. This fear is a reverential fear. It is a fear that says that God is my boss. God is in charge. I am not. He is the Lord, the God Almighty. And David offers us a rhetorical question that makes it so emphatically clear. Who doesn't want to live a long, good life? Well, in order to live a long, good life, one has to live in obedience to the Lord. And so he offers a number of ways through what we speak and what we do. Keep your tongue from evil and your, your tongue from speaking deceit. deceit. And that's so true of so many of the unrighteous around us. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And you'll see that the Lord delivers. One commentator writes, this continues with the teaching, meaning the teaching throughout the Bible, that the good you enjoy goes hand in hand with the good you do. The good you enjoy is the good you do, right? If you enjoy sin, then you do sin. If you enjoy righteousness, then you do righteousness. If you enjoy the things of God, then you do the things of God. If you do not enjoy the things of God, you don't do, right? This is similar to Jesus' teaching about trees, Right? That good trees bear good fruit and bad trees bear bad fruit. Right? This is what David's point is. That God provides for those who are seeking to obey Him. Perhaps that's you this morning. You desire the good things of God, yet you're unwilling to submit to His Word. His will for your life. Brothers and sisters, we ought to see that God provides in correlation to our obedience. This offers the third reason. In verses 15 through 22, David here offers a third reason that we ought to be grateful. That not only God answers prayer, that He, deli- or that he provides, but then finally, that the Lord delivers. God delivers from what? What is God delivering David from? Well, he's delivering him from death. He's delivering him from his affliction. He's delivering him from the circumstance that he found himself in. Well, look at how David does this. Number one, the Lord hears and delivers. Again, he reinforces this aspect that God hears. 
He uses it in the verse 15. The eyes of the Lord and His ears. His eyes. The Lord sees and He hears. He knows. What a wonderful truth just to think about today. When we feel alone, we feel like no one sees what we're going through and the struggles. Friend, God knows. God knows the difficulties of our lives, the afflictions, the, the tribulations, the trials that you and I are experiencing. God knows them. God sees them. God cares for us in this way. David goes on to recount the ways in which the Lord is for the righteous, those who seek to follow after Him. And He delivers them from all their fears. You notice here a number of aspects in verse 17 and 18. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. As he said earlier, it's the humble that he saves, not the proud. It's the ones who can't save themselves. Those are the ones God saves. Those are the ones that God delivers. What a wonderful picture of you and me. The brokenhearted, the crushed in spirit. Perhaps that you this morning. You're crushed. You're brokenhearted. Life has over, overwhelmed you. You're drowning. Friend, God will save you if you would merely cry out to Him. He promises it here. He says, these are the people I save. I don't save those who are safely on the shore. I save those who are in the ocean, floundering and drowning as the waves crash over them. God saves the afflictions of the righteous. Notice here in verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, and the Lord delivers them out of them all. If there was one verse you might use against the prosperity gospel, this would be one of them. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. In other words, we ought to expect affliction, suffering, sorrow, difficulty. Life is not a bed of roses. Life is not perfect here and now. Life is broken. It's messy. It's difficult. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers them out of them all. He delivers them in such a way that they are not condemned. What is David's point? We ought not to correlate affliction with condemnation. We ought not uh, correlate that when I'm suffering, it's because I did something wrong. I made God mad. He's mad at me, and so he's, he's punishing me. And if I would only do good, then God would bless me. No, that's a works righteousness that is foreign to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the author of the gospel of John, the apostle John, uses this particular psalm as he reflects upon as he looks upon Calvary and he sees Jesus hanging there, and the Roman soldiers, as they see that Jesus 
was already passed. He was already dead. They don't go and break his legs in order to speed up his asphyxiation. He was already asphyxiated. He had already breathed his last. He was already dead. And he quotes this psalm. He kept all his bones. None of them is broken. You see, David is driving at a particular point that the New Testament sees fulfillment of. And that is that God delivers us ultimately from sin so that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. How how is it that we can say that, that those who take refuge in Him will not be condemned? Verse 22. How can we have confidence that the Lord has redeemed our life? How can we consider last week in Psalm 130 that we can have assurance of salvation because someone else was condemned in your place? You and I don't need to fear condemnation before a holy and righteous God because Jesus on Calvary's cross faced the condemnation that our life rightly deserves. Oh friend, don't confuse the point that you deserve to be condemned because of your sin. I deserve to be condemned. But God in His grace and His abundant mercy has punished His Son. He has poured out His wrath. He has condemned His own Son so that those who have faith in Him might be set free. Of all people, We are the most to be grateful. For we have been saved and delivered. As the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, that we have been delivered. We have been freed. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom is the heir of all things. Brothers and sisters, we have been delivered. We have been set free. And though we face many afflictions in this life, as we heard earlier through the Apostle Paul, that these afflictions are light and momentary and far outweigh the eternal glory that is to be revealed at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, as God's people, we ought to extend gratitude for our deliverance. We ought to invite others into this praise of the glories of God and His atoning work through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, let us cultivate gratitude among us. But we'll never be grateful if we think we deserve salvation. It is only when we understand our position as helpless that God can be our helper. Only when we understand that we are destined to die for our sin, when we understand that God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son, then and only then can we have gratitude that God saves. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We are grateful. We are grateful because we do not merit This great salvation. We are grateful this morning because you and you alone have saved. You have heard our cries and you have rescued us. 
We have turned to You, and not to ourselves, to this world, or anyone else, but to You alone for salvation. Father, save us, we pray. Deliver us that we will not face condemnation, but through the blood of Christ we will be forgiven. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Friends, we have an occasion this morning to be grateful through the Lord's Supper, to remind ourselves of the broken body of Christ, the shed blood of Christ that was shed for our sin, for our atonement this morning. As our deacons and uh, Pastor Brett makes his way forward uh, to uh, pass out the elements, I want to give a number of instructions this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul teaches the church concerning the Lord's Supper. And a number of things that we understand about it. Number one, it is an ordinance of the church. In other words, it's not an individual activity. It's a corporate activity. It's to be done by those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ. In this way, it is a Christian ordinance. Um, So this morning, if you don't self-consciously understand yourself to be a Christian, let me just encourage you when the plate passes to allow it to pass by. We seek not to judge you. Also, if you've not been baptized as a believer, uh, so we understand that baptism, the Lord's Supper, and membership are inseparably linked together, that we are baptized into membership in the local church, and it is a privilege uh, extended to those who have been baptized. So if you don't understand yourself to be a Christian or you've not been baptized or a believer, but perhaps you're gathering with us today and you're not a member of our church. Friends, you are welcome, if you um, are a Christian and been baptized as a believer, you're welcome to feast with us. Just a reminder about what we're doing in this moment. Uh, we're, we're not doing this out of mere ritual, but rather as a memorial, a remembrance, uh, like a spiritual health checkup. Uh, we want to ensure, sort of reflect, have I been following Jesus? It's been a month since we've uh, partaken This last month, have I been following Christ? A a renewal, if you will, of your covenant commitment to Christ to feast upon Him. But it also is, in in many ways, a dress rehearsal. Dress rehearsal of the marriage supper of the Lamb. A reminder that Christ is coming again to rescue His church and to usher in His eternal kingdom. With these in mind, join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before You this morning in this assembly to feast upon Christ, to remember His body broken because of our willful rebellion against You, because we wanted to live life our way. His blood shed on Calvary's cross, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Oh, His blood was perfect. It's a powerful blood. It it cleansed us. It washed us. It made us new again. And now that blood flows through our veins. And we are a blood-bought people. United together in Christ, we are brothers and sisters. Breaking bread and drinking together. We do so with anticipation that one day we shall all do this together before and in and through that great marriage supper of the Lamb.
Let us do this with anticipation for your glory and our good in Christ's name. Amen.